I was like, okay, well, I like computer stuff. Computer stuff is cool. I'll go into computer science, I guess. And then maybe that is a way to make video games. I'm mm. not really sure. Right, right. And then that just happened to be like, oh, yes, that's actually, that's, that's exactly, that is actually exactly the right thing that. to do. Right, right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Nels Anderson, who is the lead designer of the critically acclaimed 2D stealth game, Mark of the Ninja. Nels currently works at Campo Santo on their new game, Firewatch. Okay, so what I usually start with people is just, um, what's the first video game you remember? Oh, man. Because I have a terrible memory, I'm not sure what the timeline is. I can definitely tell you the first... I mean, it's fine. It's like the first one that like made can, the impact, right? No, I can tell you the first console game and the first PC game. I can't tell you which one I played first. Sure. The first PC game, oh, I was actually probably on a Mac. Uh, the first, yeah, the first game it was, it was almost certainly played on an Apple II in our computer lab in my elementary school in Jackson, Wyoming. Because wow. we, my, well, I did not own a computer until I was much older than that. Right. It was weirdly. Um, Cosmic Osmo and the Worlds Beyond Mackerel, which okay. was basically the game that Robin and Ryan Miller made before Mist. Oh yeah, yeah, that was, and then they made like the Manhole, like that. It was like that type of, you know. What sure, I have okay. no idea. All I remember okay. was it was black and white, and it was yeah, it was like hypercard game. Right? Yeah, basically, yep. it was it was absolutely one of those. I remember playing that. It was it was the first time. It's like probably before that in class. Maybe we I don't know played like. Of an Oregon Trail or a Mass sure. Blaster or something. But that was when I remember, like, specifically staying after school, going in the computer lab, and just being like, I wonder what's on here. What is this? Right, yeah. Whoa! <laughs> and then my brain exploded. Right. Um, yeah. And then the console game was, you know, some Christmas in 80-whatever, 80 86, 87, maybe. Uh, my family got, my mom got me and my sister an NES. So, right. like... Probably many people that are about my age, there was a lot of Mario and Duck Hunt and Super Track and Field right. on that tower pad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Did you um, did you have like a big variety of games, or did you have a few that like you didn't <sighs> out to death? It was probably so. Um, again, growing up, like. Uh, I rented a, there was an Albertsons grocery store mm. and they had both a video and game rental section so wow. I've rented a lot of Super Nintendo games from that Albertsons for sure yep. Yep. Um, and then when I got older probably like when did Warcraft 2 come out? 95 95 okay so yeah probably when I was like 12 then Right. Uh, I begged Scrimps borrowed saved and got my mom's old college roommate's boyfriend who worked in tech because again I, I was living in a town in Wyoming that had like 10,000 people in it so right. it's not like we had a computer store right Right. it's none of that yeah. but this friend of my mom my boyfriend of my mom's friend he worked for like a tech company in Seattle and so mm -hmm. they came out once and my mom was able to get her friend's boyfriend to basically like buy a 486 with a turbo button and mm -hmm. like bring it out with him wow. and so that was the first computer i ever actually owned and from there it was like warcraft and civ and like all of all of those so i was basically growing up i was like either playing nintendo console games like super nintendo or n64 or whatever right. or like 
the the usual like mid nineties two thousands PC stuff. Right, like right. I I didn't have a PlayStation until I was until probably well into when a PS two came out. I didn't have a PS two until well into a PS three came out. So it was basically growing up. It was like either all the PC stuff you'd expect or NES games. Right, right. Which so which ones stood out to you during this page? Well, I mean, as as might make sense, certainly I played and had my brain exploded by Thief. Right. <laughs> um, kind of that like that glory age of like late '90s, either very simul like very very much very much PC ass PC games, right. so stuff that like things like Thief or you know Planescape Torment or something like that. Like definitely the. Stuff that was had a lot of mechanical heft, but also was evocative and thematic. Like I probably, I'm sure I played plenty of shooters, but the, you know the ones that I remember way more than like this stuff, like you know Half Life or whatever, right? Where it's like, oh, it's a, it's a good solid set of mechanics that are doing something interesting, but also like an interesting world presentation theme, whatever. Sure, yeah. Well, I remember at Thief is that. Yeah, you know, it was one of the first games I remember where, um, you know, the me- mechanics encourage you to wait at times, yeah. right? And, like, you, you know, you got to know a level really, really well because the game wasn't trying to push you through it. Yeah, well, see, right? that, was, that was the thing that, that you, only, you only notice its absence in other games when you notice its presence in Thief. But Thief was definitely the first game I ever played where it felt like a world existed outside of my character, right? Because right. most games, it's like, oh, there's the bubble of, like, agency and the living world around you, and as long as... If you're not looking at it, it, for all intent, just stops existing. But right. I think it's like, oh, no, there... Because, I mean, the fundamental precept of the game is the game doesn't know where you are. Right. So it kind of has to exist, like, separately from the from the player, character, avatar, whatever. Um, and so that was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. And, like, the snippets of dialogue that sort of came across from the guards. Yeah. Um, you know, just all these different reasons for you to take your take your time with the game. Yeah, it's um, all, a whole bunch of, like, light-touch stuff that it seems like a lot of... And listening to, to folks who've talked about it afterwards, like, a lot of it was definitely, like, function... Like, form following from function, where it's like, okay, well, we want to make this sneaky game, so how are we going to build a world that does that and all this other stuff that fits around that so it's kind of it wasn't like they set out to it, it doesn't feel like they set out to like have all those rad aesthetic trappings initially i mean obviously it was originally like this king arthur game and all that stuff right um but it feels like a lot of the most a lot of the stuff that kind of sticks with you most like aesthetically in that game just kind of fell naturally out of the game they were trying to make right which was ah still so awesome yeah yeah i mean if you think of if nothing else it's a good way it's a good use of content in that like most shooters, you know, you, you know, they build these levels, and you, you're just running your way through it, like you're just chewing up content. You're just sprinting your way past infinite dollars. Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> like I spent all day making that lamp, which you just ran right by. Yep. Goodbye. Um, and uh, yeah, you didn't, you didn't have that issue with thief. And I also love the um, sort of optional difficulty levels. Yes. You know, I thought that was that was a great thing. Yeah, where it's not, it's like it's, it's not this just numerical thing where it's like, oh, now the dudes are going to have 150% of their health or whatever. It's like, okay, you need to get through this level make sure you steal at least 5,000 gold worth of stuff. Oh, and also you can't kill anybody. Yeah. And you're like, what? There, I mean, we even tried to emulate some of that stuff to a, a lesser extent in Ninja. Like in, in every level in Ninja, mm, sure. there are three optional objectives right. that are very much like... 
kind of live to fulfill two purposes where it's just kind of that same opt-in difficulty thing but also encouraging you to kind of explore a set of the game's mechanics or systems that you might not normally if you're just kind of playing to get through the levels and do well but it's like okay we'll get through the level and do well but also do it by you know doing three of these things or doing it by you know not being seen during this one section or whatever um which really feels like kind of an underutilized technique right because it's it's still often it's still like okay we're gonna make this harder we're gonna make the numbers bigger right which yeah. i mean obviously in some cases that works fine but it feels like there's a lot of fertile soil still with we're gonna make things different and force you to be more clever not just react faster or yeah. whatever well i mean i think games of all have all often had that sort of gating problem of like you know there's here there's a whole lot of game here to play with but um at certain points, you're just going to have to perform at a certain level yeah. to move forward, you know. And you know, obviously, they can just dial down the numbers way down. But like at that point, it's kind of like the game is, you know, falling over for you basically. <laughs> so like you're not really engaging with the systems either, you know. Whereas with Thief, like you know, it's kind of like you could you could easily see yourself going through each level like three or four times, yeah. you know, and playing it playing it very differently and. Um, well, that was the other. That was the other thing that was so good, and it was really felt unique. Like, ulti- you, 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 again, it's not a really thing you notice in other games until you see the thing that's the version that's not that. But most games are kind of like you know the movie set or Disneyland ride or whatever. Was just kind of like, oh, these are cardboard walls, and don't look behind there because it's actually nothing. But in Thief, it's like, oh, this level is going to be in a manor house. You start on the outside. You have to get in and then get back out. It's just like this one, like, contiguous, actual, like, properly simulated area of space that just behaves like the way space in the real world does. I mean, obviously, it's a video game, but it's kind of like you need to get in, get out, do it however you want. Um, And that also was, like, (laughs) revelatory, right? Um, It's not just you don't have to go, oh, I start at the beginning, I go to the end. It's approach this however you see fit. Yeah, yeah. The other game for the era, I kind of... Sort of think of in those terms are like kind of like the Ghost Recon, like uh, those mm. type of games, and that you know, like they, you know they had they had a piece of, you know they had a building. Like we, I, I would often play these games with my friends, and like uh, sort of the terrorist hunt mode, which mm-hmm. there's like twenty bad guys yeah. on the level, and you know we had to, we had to find a way to get you know kill them all. But uh, you know the nice thing about them is it wasn't, um, you know it wasn't as the level was not as you know. A, a, you know, a long corridor, yeah. right? It was just a house, and it had all these different entrances, and there's all these different ways to approach it, and, like, yeah. um, like it's it's nice to not have kind of, like, things that are over-designed. Right. right? Like, and obviously that can, that can be fine. There's obviously plenty of games do that, and they are great, right? But be, kind of seeing the alternative and realizing the options there and just how that kind of fundamentally changes the way someone approaches the actual experience in a way that's like puts way more agency in the player's hands stuff like that is ah oh, yeah it was I, I I like Thief a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well I mean obviously like you know I'm sure when we get to Mark of the Ninja you know there's gonna be a lot to talk about with yeah it. kind of gets a surprise to no one <laughs> yeah 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 for sure so what else what else stood out to you from that from that era oh um I mean I so in high school I, I played a ton of tabletop RPGs um okay. Dungeons and Dragons, of course, uh, but also other stuff like Shadowrun and some of the White Wolf stuff. Um, so the the digital versions of of those, like kind of the the height of of Black Isle stuff, yep. um, 
was it was humongous. Like obviously, still Planescape Torment is one of my favorite games ever. Right. Um, I mean, obviously, like Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale were also rad. But what did you like about Planescape? I was always just stupidly in love with the world of Planescape. Still, it is it is like one of my favorite like game settings, regardless. Just because. I was always kind of a, a a dork for like philosophy. Actually, I I, mm-hmm. I got degrees in both computer science and philosophy. Oh, <laughs> right. um, and so the fact that like the core of Planescape Torment is just all about, and well, just the world of Planescape in general is like okay, everyone has these beliefs, and there's just kind of like this this multiverse, whatever exists with with some type of creature people whatever just taking some particular belief or ethos or outlook and just cranking it all the way up to its most intense version of that um obviously that is most manifest in sigil with all the different factions where it's like here basically now you recognize almost as like er objectivists and then here are these people who are like supreme nihilists and then here are these people who are like hedonists mm-hmm. and the fact that all it was just all about like a battle of ideas, not just some dude with a sword stemming an orc in the face, but it was more about, like, what you believe actually shapes the way the world around you operates. Right. And so that, just, like, as a high-level concept for a setting is still something I absolutely love. And then Torment itself was, like, it's just, it's so... And I, I'm very jealous that you get to talk to Chris <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. um, but, like, it's it's so sharp, and it makes things like your character it it, it it you know most like big rpgs have the problem where it's like you're the most important person in the world you have to save the day also could you maybe take this package to that guy over there <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you're the world savior also you're kind of a mailman right, right so enjoy it um so torment managed to be both local like you're not saving the multiverse right like right. you're trying to find out what happens you're just trying to figure out what happened to you and yeah. so all this seemingly ancillary stuff just like random side quest stuff it's actually you discover that it's all just about you like all the people you meet and all the problems they have is just stuff you've done to them or done in a way that somehow touched them and you've forgotten so it made it puts you front and center actually in a way that most like big classic rpgs say that you're most you're the most important person in the world but actually you're not really at all um and torment flips the script and does that in a way that's like unique and solid and uh yeah, yeah. cool well, what would what would you ask chris if you oh god i don't know i see the problem is i haven't played torment probably in like five years and i really need to go back and play it again um yeah so i have no idea <laughs> um what else it obviously kind of a, a very a very similar type of game like i i absolutely still am completely in love with fallout Mm-hmm. Yeah. perhaps and i think this is kind of the of the minority opinion but i mean obviously both are excellent but i think i still slightly prefer fallout one to fallout two right yeah it's a similar kind of thing where it's just like a super interesting world you know you you have an important thing to do but you're not trying to save the planet and the fact that like you just walk out like at the beginning of fallout one you walk out of the vault and it's like well go f- Find a water chip, I guess, yeah, and you yeah. just have a map. You're like, oh, um, I guess I'll go this way. Uh, and that just feeling of just like, well, you're kind of on your own, and you just need to figure out wh- what the hell you're going to do and do it. And just, it again, just puts, like, a ton of agency in the player's hands. You can really approach the games wherever you want. I mean, you know, it's the guy, like, you know, the golden era of 90s computer RPGs were, like, there were a ton of them, and they all did this very well. But for whatever reason, Fallout was one of the ones that definitely 
stuck with me pretty yeah. ferociously. Yeah, I love Fallout. You feel like you really see the role playing roots in Fallout. Of, yeah, like, you know these are these are all these different paths through the game, and we're going to do our absolute best to support them. And yeah, yeah it seems like that must have been so hard to make. Um, I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, that was a, that was a great game. Um, I mean, the one thing that weirded me, I never finished it. <gasps> really? No. Um, oh man, but, but I really like Fallout, but I remember I was just I was always weirded out by the timed thing. Yeah. In the background, where I'm like, because I know you know RPGs are such these giant sprawling games, right? right? And the the concept that and you feel, it feels like different people could like play the same RPG, and one person could easily take three times as long. Yeah, yeah for as sure. The other one, just because who knows? You know, they're they're not they're not tight experiences, right? Correct. <laughs> That's not the point. And so to have like this like oh you know giant timer on the top of it it was just like it like really stressed me out well and and then there were actually two timers right there was the before you get the water chip thing so you actually can see the days ticking down but right. then after you get the water chip there's just this other now second invisible timer when the super mutants will find your vault and kill everyone and you don't know when that's going to happen i remember once i was i think it was the second time i played the game I'd done the thing where it's like you have alternating save files, right? You like save slot one, save slot two, and then go right back. So what I had unfortunately done was save slot one was going – I'd hiked way the hell down south to the glow. Yeah. And I was – first save slot was going into the glow. The second save slot, I went into the glow until stuff was coming back out. And then I you know, had the second slot, which overrode wherever it was before I even went down to the glow in the first place. And then about like – half a day's walk back it's just like oh super mutants invade your base and everybody's uh, done and i'm like oh well let's load my old save file oh crap i'm gonna start hiking back north and not a super mutants invade again, your vault yeah. and i was like well i guess i'm glad i already finished this game once because otherwise <laughs> now i would be very sad yeah uh, it's a funny it's a funny era because there's so much incredible design and then there's also just like these few things where like what in the world were they thinking <laughs> I think there's still a part of me that likes it just because that's a thing you could for good reason just never get away with now mm. but the fact that it, it it they did and it exists even though sure there are a bunch of reasons why it's not the best thing to do yeah i still kind of like that that exists <laughs> well there's a there's sort of i don't know what their term for it is but like there's a a certain tolerance for what you can do with a game that's like directly proportional to the length of time you are in the game, right? Mm. Like if you play a game and each each life around or whatever lasts two minutes, right? You get to do whatever you want, correct? Right, as a <laughs> but like once you're over 20, 30, 40 hours, <laughs> like your your design yeah. palette gets gets limited. There's certain things that kind of end off the table. But yeah, on the other hand, you know, it, you know, people should do whatever they want to with games. It doesn't have to like you know, work for everyone. That's, yeah. That's... Well, I mean, you kind of even have the same through line between Demon Souls, Dark Souls, and Dark Souls 2, all of which games that I I, I love to, to no end. Yeah. Um, where in the very first Demon Souls, like, if you just... I mean, in those games, you can kill just about any of the NP, in the important NPCs, right? And in Demon Souls, you just... Act, this happened to me once when I was playing it. Fortunately, I was near the end of the game, so it wasn't that bad. But there's only one guy in the entire game, one, like, blacksmith-type dude, who can actually make decent weapons for you, right? right? And setting the controller down on the coffee on my coffee table to get it for a second, I, I hadn't paused it for whatever reason. I think, like, the phone rang. I was just like, oh, uh -huh. set the controller down. And it bumped the strong attack button. You killed him? So... Oh, I didn't kill him. No, 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 no. You just hit him, and he aggros, and so he tries to kill you, <laughs> and he will never talk to you again, yeah, oh, ever. Geez. If you show up there, he will try to murder you. So I'm like, well, 
I guess the equipment I've got is the equipment I'm finishing the game with. <laughs> and so in, in Dark Souls, they had it so that you kind of have to deliberately hit somebody twice. And even if that happens, there's this other like, uh, he's like, oh, he's absolver of sins. I forget basically guys. I mean, you can go and drop like a ton of souls on him and he'll like kind of make everyone in the world forget that you were a giant asshole to them. Okay. And then all the way into Dark Souls 2, it's like, oh, if you kill some important NPCs, they just show back up as a ghost and you can still talk to them anyway. Right. Um, I'm so, kind of fine with the middle version of that where yeah, it's not like... That's great. So is that a positive development or a negative development? I mean, the thing in Demon Souls while hilarious was probably a bit too vicious because it's like, literally, I just accidentally bumped the button on my controller. <laughs> but I think the Dark, the Dark Souls 2 version is probably like a little too inconsequential, right? Um, like that was some of the stuff that I I love in those games so much and other I mean similar games from like the early 90s where it's like you have real tangible consequences for what you do that are occasionally immediate but sometimes will not play out for hours and hours and but the, it's not like oh you did the bad thing so game over screen start again it's like oh you killed the only person in the game who can sell you important weapons yep Finish the game, I guess. Yep, yep. And the fact that that stuff is just, it's consistent and consequential, but it, it isn't like a failure state. It's just kind of a, you just have to adapt to this now state. It makes everything that happens in those games feel way more just real and impactful and consequential than it does when it's just like, oh, it's either a failure screen or it's just, you know... You shoot some important NPC and then the bullets just clip through them and nothing happens, yeah. right? It's like, no, this is actually a real world with real place and the things you do, you are going to have to live with those consequences. And that is a thing that is also just kind of a high-level design idea that yeah. every time, yeah, it excites me very much. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I love consequences like, since, you know, I'm coming from sort of a strategy game background. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that's a little different, like, from like sort of a strategy game perspective is that... A lot of that stuff sometimes seems strange to me because I like consequences, but I also like making people know what the consequences of their actions are going to be right. ahead of time. Yeah. Like that's the whole point of a strategy game is like you know, yeah. you're making some choices, and even if the result of something is uncertain, you usually know well these are the three things that are possible. Yeah, and I know maybe this is the likely scenario and this is the unlikely, but at least I'm making this decision knowing that you know these are the possible outcomes. You know, where if you play a game and, you know, you're making a decision and an outcome is just going to be, could be totally unexpected. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it's just a it's just very different design. Yeah. Different well, design and often it's, it's it's not that it's unexpected. It's just, it's the it's more often just the kind of stuff that most games just don't let you do, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, oh, there's this important NPC that, that sells vital things. Well, I can't kill them. It's like, no, in Dark Souls, you, you totally can. You can just grease them, take their stuff, but then you're never getting access to those things again. Ever. And you're like, oh, I guess that that makes sense. If I kill this guy, I, I will not be able to buy things from him anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so back, in the, so when you were playing games like Fallout and Planescape, this was now in the age of the the internet, right? It's uh, the sort early, of the early days. Maybe I don't know if I made it to Wyoming or not. Eh, <laughs> so we had very very crappy dial up internet that I yeah, couldn't yeah. use during the day because my mom needed to use the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I did not get much internet. <laughs> okay. Well, where I'm going with that is like so with these games, these are big games with lots of stuff hidden all over them, all over them. Like, were you 
researching these games, or were you trying no. to just you were just going through them? Yeah, you're yeah. just banging your head against the wall. Yeah, something. totally. Yeah, no, definitely. I don't recall. I mean, I'm, it might have happened a little bit. Like, oh, I'll get some time at the public library after school to look up Fallout stuff on the internet, but probably not much. It was it was way more like folk exploration with all with my friends who were also playing those games right it's like oh did you go to junk town and do this thing and you can find this weird gun or whatever um that was way more of it than spending a lot of time on the internet like deep delving into that stuff yeah you didn't really one of the nice things about rpgs from that era is i feel like they took over the thing i wanted from adventure games that adventure games no longer gave delivered right just because like adventure games had gotten so esoteric yes point like the you know, it's like uh, it felt like they were a satire of themselves, right? right. And like how you had to solve stuff. But um, these RPGs had heavily, heavy implements, heavy uh, elements to their story that felt like adventure games, right? But they weren't blocking puzzles, yes, right? You know? Yeah, I mean, there was some stuff like that, but usually there were all these different paths and and you know uh, ways you could go, mm-hmm. and like it kind of like it scratched that itch while at the same time also, yeah, having like this really nice, you know, like the also gamey mechanic type stuff. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, I did have a soft spot for like you know the big canonical like Lucas Arts adventure sure. games, right? But aside from those, I, I was usually I probably spent like way more time with like computer RPGs of the era for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember, like, the, you know, the adventure games are dying was like the sort of common refrain, and I was like, well, I mean, I, I just playing them. They're just called Baldur's Gate now. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what that's what they are. Yeah. Um, cool. So, um, so at this time, you know, you're playing lots of computer games. Um, did you think you might have wanted to make computer video games? Oh God, not really. Because I'm again being like a living in a tiny town in Wyoming. Like I, and a lot of people say this, I guess, but it's like you. You know, I mean, I guess at some level you understand that all things have to be made by somebody. So somebody made these. But it it was never at all a thing where it's like, who makes these games? How do you become a person that does them? Who knows, right? right. It was never like an explicit goal. Um, But obviously being a giant dorky kid, I was into computer stuff as much as I could be. Like, again, my high school didn't have... A programming class or anything like that so it was just mostly mucking around with the stuff I had but when I went to university I I was like okay well I like computer stuff computer stuff is cool I'll go into computer science I guess and then maybe that is a way to make video games I'm mm-hmm. not really sure right right and then that just happened to be like oh yes that's actually that's that's, exactly, that is exactly actually the right thing that. to do right right <laughs> Okay, cool. So you knew it, you you maybe mess around with a little programming, but then you you just started taking CS classes. Yeah, I no, I literally had to like, I mean, like build a crappy GeoCities website. Sure, yeah, that I, was yeah. it. Like I, aside from that, nothing because it just it just. I mean, I guess maybe because like there was no there was no one that I knew who did that. So I could yeah. be like, how it wasn't not only were there not classes available, but I didn't know anybody. Period who did that stuff at all, yeah. right? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little older, but I get kind of similar feelings of, you know, I had, like, like the Commodore. And one of the nice things about that was back then, like, it literally started you in basic. Mm. So you almost had to learn a little bit just to, right. even, like, sort of use your machine. But I remember seeing these books that was, like, you know, the tips and tricks of, like, you know, making you know, making games on the Commodore. And, uh. like, you'd open it up, and it's all, like, assembly code and <laughs> peaks and pokes and, like... 
just like the gap between what I saw and like where that was, right. just seemed like <laughs> unfathomable. Um, and uh, that's fine. I also talked to people of my generation who like they did make that leap, yeah. even at my age. And so I'm like, what was wrong with me? Yeah, I'm always kind of jealous. It was like I grew up programming games with my Amiga. I'm like, Jesus Christ! I, I played I played Final Fantasy three. Right, right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, probably the closest would be like being into PC games heavily of that era, like, you kind of did have to be relatively technical just to make just those goddamn work. games yeah. work sometimes. So it's like, okay, familiarity with digging around on the command line yeah. was just was just enough um, to be like, okay, well, maybe that's what computer yeah. stuff is. I don't know. Uh, but then I went to university, and I just went straight up into CS, and I was like, oh, this is really hard, but I guess I'm actually okay at it. So you started learning C, basically? Yep. Like that? yep. Yeah, I went to the um, University of Colorado at Boulder, and they uh -huh. have... Technically, the CS department there is in the engineering school. Uh-huh. So it is, it is definitely an engineering degree, as yeah. in, like, we're starting with C, and you're going to take a bunch of calculus, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just it's very much like... Old school, old school CS. CS, where it's like, all right, your, here's the Linux lab. Yeah. Everything's on the command line. You're yep. Your data structures. You're gonna yep. operate systems. Yep. You got to take this insane these you EE, take classes. EE classes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually really enjoyed my EE classes. Like it was like kind of like a giant puzzle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it was like this is totally. I will never use this. Correct. <laughs> It seems kind of cool. To like it is interesting it. to to actually know what a circuit board does. Yeah, but also those classes were goddamn hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I was like, I was, I was like, I could tell, like, I was at the period of time where, like, by the time I get out of school, I will not need to learn assembly. Right. And like the people before me probably had to learn assembly, and yeah. I'm glad I was not born ten years earlier. Correct. <laughs> like I feel like I've you know constantly been like on the edge of like. Being able to be wasteful with my code, and that's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, that's a wonderful thing. Um, yeah. Cool. So did you try to make games, once you started learning to program, like, did you try to make games in school? Or? Still not really. Um, I mean, all, so, because... Did, did you feel kind of like that was what you ideally hoped to do with programming? Or it that was, was like, this is something I can do? Yeah, that was an option. Um, I will not starve now, probably. Yeah, like, all the, all the, so, I'd still done lots and lots of, like, quote-unquote game design, but it was all... Pencil and paper, tabletop stuff. Okay. Um, you make campaigns and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I done, so I done tons and tons of that in high school. Um, okay. Cool. And what had actually happened? Uh, there was this edition shift at, in Dungeons and Dragons, like right. there is when they went from second edition to third edition, which was the first time I actually had a rule set that wasn't, in retrospect, total garbage. <laughs> um, but they kind of obviously they the TSR slash Wizards had a bunch of old game material like stuff like Planescape or this other setting that I was super into called Dark Sun that was all built in second edition rules and they weren't going to be officially supporting it in third edition so a bunch of wizards just kind of gave the tacit approval for like a number of us to be like oh you can be the official unofficial bring this content setting up the third edition website mm -hmm. um, and so I was involved with all the people who were doing that for this one setting called Dark Sun and it was basically just like doing the job of a you know Wizards of the Coast like RPG developer, right. but for free on the internet. But it was stuff where it's like, okay, well, okay, here's here's the... And it was actually the first time sitting down, like, trying to have a good proper understanding, like, okay, how are the systems for this game actually built? You know, if you want, like, a CR4 creature, what does that actually look like? Like, how... You look at their stats, and, like, how do you balance the player characters and their prestige classes? So it was actually, like, a bunch of, like, real legitimate game design stuff. It's just at the time, I didn't quite think of it that way. 
Right. Um, so there, so I was doing that basically through all, and still playing a ton of tabletop stuff through basically all of undergrad. Um, and then when I was getting near the end of undergrad, there was basically one of two things. Well, there's kind of like three things. I was like, I'm going to do one of these three things. I'm not sure what it is. It was do game stuff. Mm-hmm. It was maybe stay in academia or, or go into law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, right, that's a curveball. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I think it like both that and games kind of have a similar through line of it's like it's all about solving hard, interesting problems, right? Um, and it was law enforcement in the sense of like like digital crimes, right? It was like oh. secu- cybersecurity stuff. It wasn't like being a beat cop or something. <laughs> okay. um, there was actually the um, the was FBI- there a program about that. that yeah, is that uh, it wasn't at it wasn't at CU, um, but the FBI, all of their field offices, and there's a field office in Denver, has like a summer internship program okay. where a bunch of people apply, and then one person from each field office gets selected. They go to I don't know DC or Quantico or whatever um, as like a summer intern thingy. Um, and so the the top three candidates for the uh, for the Denver field office were me, um, again going from like the computer forensics, digital forensics, like cybersecurity angle, um, a lady who I ended up dating briefly later, who was actually an accounting student, so completely unrelated the dating part. Um, <laughs> it just it was just coincidence where like like six months later we were like. I was talking about like, oh, I interned for the FBI. And she's like, really? I almost did that too. And I was like, oh, I guess we were competing against each other. Wow. Um, and so she was an accounting student, so it was this kind of a similar bent where it's like white collar crime, money laundering. Uh, but the pers- uh, third person, third person who got the internship was a dude who spoke Arabic. Oh. And so this was in like 2003. So it's like, oh, okay, pretty, pretty useful. Yeah. That is a that is a free pass, yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I when I finished my undergrad degree, uh, I I'd been doing a bunch of research with a bunch of grad students. So I was like, okay, well I'm gonna do a master's degree, and basically research in what? Do computer science stuff. Um, the lab I it was like yeah. <laughs> computer science stuff. Computer science stuff. Uh, the lab I was in was like a, a very systems oriented. I mean, I was just doing basic like. I mean, is it like graphics? Simple monkey. Like... It was it was a systems lab, and the stuff that they were all doing was um about uh uh um. Not omnidirectional. The opposite. Um, blah, not omnidirectional. Whatever the opposite of an omnidirectional is. Um, omnidirectional radio. Where okay. it's like the radio can be like, rather than just being universally broadcast, it has like weird electronic stuff to have it just be pointing in a certain direction. One space. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I forget what it's called because that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've been doing a bunch of research. I mean, like, as like the lowest low level undergrad research assistant right. type thing um, in a lab. And I was like, okay, well I like this kind of academia researchy stuff. So I applied to a bunch of different grad schools and there was kind of like two different bents. There were all the ones that had like very specific cybersecurity type programs. And that was like, okay, well if I do that, the plan is going to be to try to go to the FBI um, or do some more like traditional academia type stuff. And then the places I got into that I cared about were Purdue, Carnegie Mellon, Hopkins, and the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Right. They're all, like, very good schools. So then I was like, where do I want to live? Right, yeah, <laughs> do yeah. I want to live in Baltimore? <laughs> do I want to live in Pittsburgh? Yeah. Do I want to live in West Lafayette, Indiana? <laughs> or do I want to live in Vancouver, Canada? Yeah. Oh, well, I guess I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> um, and so I went up to UBC. Uh, I did my master's there. But after about six months, I discovered that I did not want to do academia. Um, like it was obviously it was cool, it was very interesting, but the thing that really uh, the thing that I wasn't super into was it's all really, really, really solitary work. Sure. Like 
if even you have an advisor or whatever, and if you're lucky, maybe you'll see them once every two weeks for an hour or something. And there are other people in your lab, but obviously they have their own stuff going on. So it's yeah. just just kind of like you doing your own stuff forever. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe at some point someone will say, eh, "This is all right." Yeah. Um, and so that I discovered I was really not into that. You know, I mean, it was it was a useful experience, whatever, to have. And then I learned a lot about how to just work by myself, right? Because, like, you go to undergrad, and it's like, oh, well, here's your paper, here's your assignments, blah, 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 blah. And this is the first time it's like, oh, I just have to figure out... You gotta give yourself direction. Uh, yeah, I have to come up with a thesis topic and then do it. Yep, yep. Um, so that was super valuable, but also <laughs> not a thing I was into. Yeah, yeah. And so... Yep. Now, this uh, was, I mean, since this was, what, 2003, 2004? Uh, 2005. 2005, okay. So not really not that long ago. So at this point, you must have been aware that, like, Video game companies were a thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over. So basically, as I, I applied to a few game companies, and because they're before they're, the grad school. Or? Yeah, before grad school, but okay, there so aren't there aren't really you were considering it. I was considering it for sure. There there aren't a ton in Denver. Sure, um, no. There's like Net Devil and then yeah, one yeah. other one. Um, but when I went up to uh, UBC, um, and you, also, didn't, you didn't cast a wider net, you weren't like I'm going to apply in California. I'm going to apply. No, because at that point I was still pretty much like into pursuing some kind of like graduate degree. Right. Um. Uh. But what had happened was when I moved up to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. That was also the same. The with the year I you. The year I moved up there was the very first year PAX was. Mm. Um, so I actually volunteered to be an enforcer, like one of the okay. you know, GDC cool. equivalents of yeah. CAs. Um, and I did that for like three or four years. And doing that is what totally, it's like, oh, okay, never mind. This is actually just, this is what I want, to, what do. I want to do. Like yeah. I met a ton of industry people um, in addition to like other volunteers. And it's just like, it just humanized Actually, all of this is just made by normal people, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a I'm a normal, normal person. person, ish, <laughs> ish, definitely a heavy ish, a heavy ish. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, oh, well, this this is actually maybe a real thing. Um, so when I was in grad school, like I was still doing the enforcement thing at PAX, and I met a bunch of folks who worked for local Vancouver game dev, because obviously, especially then, there was, like, a huge scene. I mean, obviously, there's still a huge scene now, but it's kind of different. Um, but back then, there was, like, obviously a huge scene. Like, Radical was still gigantic. Like, EA on Black Box was still around then. And Relic. And yeah, obviously, Relic. And Relic is still there. Um, so I met a bunch of people, and I also um, was in a tri-mentoring program. Like, UBC has had this tremendously successful tri-mentoring program where basically they match like a, a junior student with a more senior student with someone from industry mm -hmm. just like I mean obviously it's just for the computer science department right so mostly it's people like I work at SAP or I work at IBM or whatever right. but the dude I got um, uh, that my senior student he just graduated a couple of years ago and he's working at Apple but one of his friends who was in his class worked for uh, Slant 6 okay um, and so we, uh, he just like invited me, my, my mentor invited me to a party at his buddy's house one night. And of course there were a bunch of game industry people there. And while there I met, uh, Nick Vonders. Mm -hmm. So Nick, he worked at Relic for years and years. Now he's at Slick Entertainment. Um, they did Shellraiser and now they're doing this really actually awesome brawler called Viking Squad. It's really mm -hmm. good. Uh, but I met Nick. And so just one day, like shortly, like, so after I graduated, um, I basically had to take another job immediately 
because I was up there on a student visa and I needed a job sure, or else right. I would get deported. Right. Yeah. So I was doing like a web startup thing. It was it was fine, but it was definitely not what I wanted to be doing, right? But I was just doing that <laughs> while getting my immigration paperwork sorted. Um, while it was happening, I like I met up with Nick and then I was just like, dude, can we go get coffee? Can we just maybe talk about this and it, it, he, was, he was of course like the nicest guy in the world um gave me a bunch of like great information he also introduced me to jamie chang mm-hmm. who i think you talked to earlier mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. yeah so my first actual game industry gig was at clay mm-hmm. and yeah nick introduced me to jamie and then once i got my you can work wherever you want in canada permit i was like let's talk right. um and then that was my that was my yeah that was kind of how I started. And at that point, I was just like, okay, yes, this is this is this is this is the correct thing to be doing. Yeah, yeah, wow, awesome. What was the first what was the first project then? So at Clay, this was um, maybe Jamie talked about this. Uh, there was this free to pay free to play. Yeah, sugar, sugar, sugar rush. rush yes, yeah. that was before really free to play was a thing. So it was being yeah. made in conjunction with Nexon. Um, and I was actually only there for three months okay. before. Uh, so Nexon had in like in Asia had purchased a studio in Vancouver called Human Nature, mm-hmm. um, and so Clay was still independent, but they were like working inside the Human Nature offices with some of those guys and the Nexon people to do the back end stuff. But they were still technically like an independent team, right? Um, and then Nexon in Asia just terminated the entire like Vancouver studio, and so Clay obviously still existed, but they're like, well, uh, no one is paying us anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh crap. <laughs> Uh, and since I had been the most recent hire, okay, yes, tightening yeah, the belt, last in, first out, sure. Yeah. Um, but literally two days later, because I met uh, Joel DeYoung from Hothead, mm-hmm. I, I met him at a pack, so I was able to just be like, hey, Joel, do you guys happen to need any people? Um, and coincidentally, at the time, they did, because that was when uh, Ron Gilbert was there okay. working on Death Bank. Yeah. So that is so. Deathbank is like the first game that I actually worked for a long amount of time on and did real work on. Because obviously, right. three months. Let, I think it was even less than three months in like your very first industry job. You, you, it takes some time. You don't do a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they don't necessarily trust you with the, the code base right away. Correct. <laughs> Go write a tool. And let's see what happens. Yes, I, I read some Flash exporter stuff. I think. Yeah, 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 for sure. So what was? Uh, <laughs> So what were you doing on Deathbank? So you were a programmer, right? Yep, yep. Um, I was a gameplay programmer, basically. Um, So with the engine set up on Deathbank, it was basically a thing that Ron had written, Mm -hmm. which was actually kind of like the great-grandchild of the Scum engine. Really? Like, he gave a couple years ago, he gave uh, one of those classic post-mortems about Maniac Mansion, Mm -hmm. and he had a bunch of code samples. I'm like... I recognize that. <laughs> so the the yeah, so the engine was very similar in that there was like a pretty serious line between like the low level engine stuff, which is all in C, and then the gameplay stuff, which is all in this custom scripting language that Ron had actually written. Yeah. Uh, called Grumpy Script. <laughs> because, like, like because, Ron. because Ron wrote it. Yeah, yeah. Um so basically it was me and for the majority of the project it was me and one other person were like the two programmers in script land. Okay. And then there was Ron and two other programmers who were like hardcore in the engine land. Right. So I was basically like doing all the player facing stuff, like most of the combat abilities and a bunch of the enemy AI and all the boss AI and like a bunch of the interface stuff and a bunch of the quests. Like basically any like player facing implementation yeah. stuff was me and somebody else. So how would it work? Would Ron 
give you a doc or would he sit down with you or would he just like you had a sense of what the direction was no it was usually like we just chat about like okay what is what is the next big chunk of game that needs to be built and then like yeah either just like a, usually just a conversation with ron um I don't think there was a ton of like written doc stuff, maybe a little bit, but it was more just like high level. Okay, this is like okay, this is kind of what these enemies need to do. You know, here's kind of we're brainstorming what these abilities are going to be, brr, 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 that right. kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was were, it was cool. Imp- implementing sort of high level designs and probably doing sort yeah. of some sort of low level design work, just trying to exactly get stuff to, to yeah work out. yeah. That whole programming is the last mile of design type of thing, right? Where it's kind of like oh, even for a lot of the bosses, it was actually just kind of like we need a boss that. Is this character have them right. be interesting? He used to do something, right? Yeah, don't just stand there. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was like in retrospect, it was actually pretty cool because I like I am still a, a rather profoundly mediocre programmer. <laughs> like the closer it gets to the metal, the less comfortable I am, really. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that was like kind of the ideal setup, right? Where it's like, and it's I mean, like the close to the metal stuff is rad. It's just not a thing that I like super care about per se. Like I can't get excited about it in isolation, right? Like some people would be like, you know, we like shades twenty percent off the render time or whatever. I'm like, I'm very glad you can do that. Yeah. I could never be excited about doing that myself. Yeah. <laughs> so all the player facing stuff was way more exciting, um, and so that that was kind of like the ideal first like big. And did you feel that game. way at the time? Like that's like did you? Luck into that, or did you were like, "That's this is the type of stuff I want to be working on." That it was, it was a bit more like, "This is kind of what I want to do." It was also just kind of like, "Oh, that was the, the sort of person I needed." They needed, and I was like, "Well, that's kind of the the stuff I want to do anyway." Yeah, um, yeah so it was just kind of a, a, a fortunate coincidence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I often tell programmers who want to sort of be designers at some point, like, like absolutely just. Don't take any graphics classes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, do. You should take some graphics classes. But like when you join a team, you know, volunteer for the UI. Yep. Probably no one else wants to do it. Correct. You're gonna, you're gonna <laughs> Correct. You're going to then be a designer, whether they, you know, whether you know it or not. Yep. Or, you know, or the AI, you know, volunteer. For, you know, those are those, yeah. those are what you want to work on. Yeah, absolutely. And like you are going to essentially become a designer de facto. Yep, because it's, it's actually stuff that's kind of like... The only real design direction is like we want it to do X, which is fine, but the how it actually does X is there is yeah. a lot of huge hugely impactful decisions that are made in terms of how those ideas are actually realized. Yeah. And no one no one can fill in the gaps there with a the document. No. And if if they try to, it's gonna be a disaster. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. So how um so how long did you work on that game? Like? Uh, I think it was about 18 months, maybe. It had already been working on a little bit when I showed up. Um, so I ended up there, like, the February 2009? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then the game shipped later, you, later you, in 2010. Were you happy with the work you did on that? Yeah. Yeah, it was like a first game. It was, you could you could do far, far, far worse, right? right. Like, yeah. the mechanics in it what, are... What do you think you would have done differently? Like, or were you in a position where it could make much Oh, not really. I was like, I mean, the only kind of stuff is like, oh, I kind of know how to do some of, like, ability balancing better or whatever. Right, right, but, right. like, I was not in a position to, like, rudder the high level, what is this thing going to be or not? I mean, of sure. course, like, it was relatively egalitarian, like... Yeah. If I'd had some really cool ideas, I'm sure they would have been heard. But at the time, it was just kind of like, I don't really know what I'm doing, so I will do what smart people tell me to do. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. I will inadvertently also make, maybe make some okay decisions, but mostly just learn a bunch of stuff. Yeah. You're excited and happy to be in that position. Basically. Yeah, 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 it was cool. As like a first, the first like real big gig, it was, it's 
hard to ask for a better one because yeah. it's also like it was still a pretty small company it was like mm-hmm. eh, 40 or 50 people like I've never worked at a huge shop ever and I don't know if I would really want to sure um, so it was kind of nice in like the right scope like doing kind of a weird project it was yeah it was it was actually really cool and obviously like I'd grown up playing Monkey Island so it's like <laughs> I'm working with Ron Gilbert oh my god and then he goes oh he's just kind of actually a normal guy that's fine yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's cool yeah so what happened what happened after that um, so after that, it was like we finished the the kind of like the part one, part two, Deathbank games, which was cool. Um, but I'd still, even after uh, I'd left Clay, um, obviously they were still around going. They'd made Shank. And I'd still kept in touch with those guys, right? Um, and I was definitely like very actively wanting to do more design work. Like that was pretty much like after about six months of actually making things, I was like, oh, okay, this is like all the player-facing stuff is really, really great. This is what I love, and I want to do, like, be responsible for more of the what the heck is this stuff, not just implementing the what the heck is it, but what the heck is it at all, right? Um, But the big challenge was that at Hothead, um, it was just, I was kind of the best, like, the best equipped person for all kind of the gameplay implementation stuff. So even if it's like, oh, you can do more design work, but really, when we need to get something done, we're just going to you were just kind of the only person who could really do this stuff who right. hasn't left. So it's kind of like, well, if I stay here, they might say, oh, you're a designer now, but I would just be doing the same work I was doing before, more or less, right? right. Um, so I stayed in touch with the folks at Clay. I talked to Jamie, and then Jamie said they had this new project that they were going to get started. And I was like, really? Oh, I don't know. Let's talk. And then they showed me the initial pitch video for Ninja, and I was like, Oh yes, I we could come to an agreement about this because I'd always had just like a huge soft spot for stealth as sure. as noted by by the effusive praise for Thief. Right. Um, but all like all the like Metal Gears and Tenchus and Splinter Cells, like that was just kind of like a style of game that I always really 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 liked, and so the chance to like not only be able to work on it, but actually do a bunch of like serious design work on it. I was like, oh, this is an opportunity I will leap at for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so that's when I headed over to Clay in the fall of 2010, I think. Yeah, right. yes. Yeah, fall of 2010. Okay, cool. And yeah. so what did, you, what did your role start out with on Ninja then? Well, so when I, I mean, when we very first got there, the, the deal was still being finalized with Microsoft. So I did some like super high level, vague sketch level work for Shank 2. But very quickly, as soon as like the actual ink was on the page right. for Ninja, um, it was from the beginning. Like basically there was that pitch video that was just kind of, you know, sort of a 2D side-scrolling game about a ninja. But that how, was How did the pitch video compare with what eventually came out? Uh, I mean, it's not... It's it's kind of... It, it, it is reminiscent of Ninja, for sure, but it's also presented in a way that that game could have been very different and still would have felt like, oh, I could see how this could have come out of that. Like, if it just turned into just, like, a straight, you know, Ninja Gaiden-style brawler, mm-hmm. where it's just, like, a side-scrolling, lots of stabbing, not really, like, a so capital-S stealth game. It had more combat elements, too. Yeah, I mean, it was still, like, sneaky-based, but you could yeah. imagine... I mean, Ninja, we say Ninja, you can go two different ways, right? Yes. You can go with, like, I'm a crazy combat thing. Yeah. Or I'm, like, I'm invisible. Exactly. Right? Um, And the video was kind of set up that, like, it was... It could have gone either of those ways and yeah. not felt like we were trying to make something that they didn't agree to have made. Yeah. So that initial that initial like 
the deal it was fine it's basically just like make a 2D side scrolling game about a ninja right and that's it that sure. was kind of like that's all that was actually like agreed upon really um, well at a high level usually that's basically it you need the <laughs> that's the one sentence that, that yeah exactly anyway, so, so so the actual like okay well what is the play experience of this game going to be about was pretty flexible and then from the essay I was like oh we should just make this like a serious proper stealth game like heavy emphasis on player agency being like really really proactive with how the player actually engages with the game this is a game about like planning and execution it's not a game about reaction the way most you know action adventure games are right um so like from the outside it's like okay this is this is absolutely the play experience we want it, what what i wanted was it to feel like thief in 2d right. um and fortunately like everyone was on board for that which is awesome um because obviously they the clay had made well, they had made one brawler and they were in the midst of making another. So I think a lot of the folks who were there were also interested in doing something kind of different, but like still in the aesthetic pipeline wheelhouse. So we're, you're moving from left to right. Exactly. And being able to do the stuff that they're all really good at. Um, so it was kind of, yeah, I was like, okay, well, we'll just make this a, just a full-on proper stealth game. Let's just do it. And right, then... Right. So what, uh, just curious what you'd say about this. What excited you about doing Thief in 2D? Um, so, and it's, it's hard to know how much of this is just in hindsight it made sense and how much we sure. realized from the beginning, but I can get, I definitely understand why some people find stealth games kind of, how they can kind of ricochet off them, right? Where there's just like, there's so much going on and obviously those games have, they kind of have to have like a relatively serious consequence for failure right because they right. don't there's kind of no reason to be sneaky and it just doesn't work with like right. the feeling it's meant to evoke right like you're supposed to be disempowered and that's why you have to be sneaky because you can't just be aggressive because if you you will lose um but in 3d a lot of that stuff is actually very difficult to communicate right if there's like oh there's a guy over there if i make a noise can he hear me maybe right, yeah, yeah. and really the only way to figure out a lot of that stuff or like you know in this level of illumination can that guy see me from that far away or if he's like 10 steps closer will he now see me um and so obviously a way that a lot of games dealt with that in the past was like you know you just do the metal gear soliton radar thing where you just slap a top-down vision cones and like really big indicators or whatever but obviously that's kind of like a ham-fisted yep. um but other stuff is just like way mushier and you know a splinter cell or a thief or whatever and you just kind of have to just fail quite a lot to start to internalize those systems and once you have then you can be like very proactive and you can really like start to exploit you know what's going on in the systems of the game but until you get to that point it's just kind of a lot of messing up and trying not to lose right. until you internalize all those rules and so i can get why people would just be like oh i don't want to do that and just kind of skim off the surface right so in 2d well you kind of flatten things and simplify it a lot where there's no ambiguity about whether or not you know i mean we there were a bunch of other challenges but hypothetically just make you know you don't you can see okay guys are in front of me and behind me you don't have to worry about like 3d spatial awareness oh there's this guy coming behind me oh he's coming yeah. around a corner or whatever um I mean, there are trade-offs there as well uh, but the fact that the presentation was a lot simpler and like you were always going to be able to see your avatar and all the enemies, it's like, okay, well, we can make the presentation of what's going on a lot more obvious to the players. So it's kind of just like an express lane for how, how fluent 
people are in a stealth game when they've played it a lot and really internalized the system. It's like, oh, well, just due to presentation and other interface stuff, we can just get people there much, much, much faster. Um, so after Ninja came out, like a bunch of people would say like, oh, normally I really don't like stealth games, but I like this one. I'm like, oh my God, that is exactly what I wanted. <laughs> I kind of wanted to like open the window and be like, oh no, folks, these games are actually really rad. Yeah. You just need to figure out why. And the idea was, I, I mean, again, it's hard to know how much was just in retrospect, but that was a lot of it where it's like, okay, well, we're just going to kind of expose a lot of the things that you have to just internalize. We're sure. just going to make them really explicit yeah. and just get to the meat of that like very you know planning based play experience yeah um yeah i mean probably the highest praise i can give ninja is you know when i played it i was like wow it makes me feel like thief should have always been in 2d right? <laughs> right? like like you know i know why they made it in 3d that was just the thing back in the day yeah uh hey that was an interesting period because it was like the excitement over 3d and like it was just like right. this makes games better if game good plus 3D, great, you know? Like, <laughs> right. And, like, in fun, like, now we're back to, like, making choices about our games instead yeah. based off of, like, what's the best way to, to do the gameplay. Right. And, um, it's also interesting in the sense that, I don't know why this comparison is jumping in my head, but, like, um, when you talk about how, you know, they play Ninja, they, they see the mechanics that you saw, you saw that were cool in Thief mm-hmm. that they wouldn't have been able to see. Right. Playing Ninja, they see them. You know, it's kind of like, um, I don't know. What I'm thinking of is like going from like EverQuest to WoW. You know? Sure, like yeah, the People yeah, who made yeah. WoW, they played EverQuest, so like, this game's amazing, we love it, but we see all the things that are like keeping people from engaging with right. like, the cool parts of it. Yeah. So like, we're going to focus on those parts. Yeah. You know, and like, yeah. carry people, you know, carry people through. And I think there's, you could probably see that progression for a lot of different genres, right. you know, as we've kind of moved forward into, you know, sort of our more, you know, our current contemporary design. Right. Um, and yeah, and the transparency to me, that's what stood out about Ninja for sure is like the transparency of the mechanics. Yeah. You know, and um, I think that a lot of um, designers don't naturally, they, 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 they kind of want, naturally want to hide mechanics because yeah. they think that's like, um, I'm creating this interesting system and like, oh, the player is going to poke at it and these things are going to yeah. happen. But like, it's, it's incredibly how ha- it's, I mean, once you once you go through the process of sitting someone down and playing your game, you realize like they can't read your mind. Yes, like, <laughs> correct for for sure. And like I thought it was, you know, that was the strongest parts of Ninja was like you know you see like, literally seeing the sound dots yeah. know, on the screen and like like you know you were very explicit about the the state that all of the guards were in. Yes, and, like you know you knew you knew what they were what they were thinking and you knew where they were going to go and like like an AI programmer wouldn't. Like a sort of a classic AI programmer would be like, I don't like this is not even AI, right? Right? Like it's just <laughs> it's just a state machine. It's just, yeah, it's just a game mechanic that the player the player is poking. You know, there's the puppeteer of yeah. the, of the, the guards, but you know that makes the game better. Right? Yeah, it's like oh, actually, that's why those games are good. I mean, that was kind of the whole point, right? Is that like stealth games, unlike most you know character based action adventure games, like they're about they're not about reaction, right? They're about being proactive where it's like, okay, well, I know that if I do X and Y, then Z's gonna happen. And that's kinda like that more planning based operation is, you know, how like that's how most strategy games actually work. And most like avatar based games are just they're not they're about reactor, right? You walk over some trigger, ah dude spawn, you gotta shoot them. But the game doesn't really care how you do it. Um, and so the satisfaction from stealth games comes of like that higher order of planning, right? Where it's like, you're basically thinking 
three moves ahead. Right, yeah. uh, about like, okay, well, what I actually want to accomplish is this. So what do I need to do to get to that point? But if you don't feel confident in the, in your being able to execute yeah. like what's going to happen, then it's just, you yeah. just, you just well, don't feel like you can reliably yeah, I mean, perform a brilliant, anything. A brilliant example of that in Ninja is you have that thing where you can sort of like pause or slow down time to yeah. like mark like three different targets. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so like, it's like, okay, this is what I want to do, but I know I probably can't execute this. Yeah. So like let's, if, let's if someone is not a Twitch element. Exactly. So that, that was, that was, that was literally the decision that was made that got to that point where it's like, if someone played this game for hours and hours and hours, maybe they could become just fluent enough in the, the, the dexterity, the controls to like jump over a thing, immediately hit a light and then land without being seen. But it's like, that's not really why this game is going to be cool, right? So like, let's just give that ability to everybody to use all the time. So now that's just another tool in mm. their, you know, in their planning repertoire for okay, well, I want to get this outcome. What do I have access to that can get me there, right? Um, and that was that was absolutely very much explicitly like what we wanted to do, and it, it's it's always nice hearing that that's kind of how it felt to folks because that was that was <laughs> that was very much explicitly the the intent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the combat a little bit because, um, you know, we talked earlier about how you could go the combat route, you could go the stealth route, yeah. sort of. Um, but you know, it still had combat. Like, was was that a tension that was hard to resolve? It was. Yeah, I mean, it was more like... Whether you have combat at all, or whether if you had too much combat, it would drown out the rest of the game. Exactly. So early on, there were definitely... There was a way more complicated combat system where it's like, oh, if you you would be spotted, you'd kind of get, like, locked into this combat stance with one of the guards, and there was kind of like a high attack, low attack, like, parrying thing. And the, the, the consequence that actually has, and I think this just applies generally to design in general, is, like, how much of an element, like, how loud an element is in the game actually says a lot about how important it is. Like, right. literally the volume? Is that what you mean? No, no, no. I mean, like, how, how large a set of mechanics are in a game. Okay. Kind of how, like, many, how many different types of attacks there are. Exactly. That, it, like, so if you have this really complicated combat system, which, like, changes your animation and, like, does all this different stuff, it's like, oh, the game is kind of saying the combat in this game is really important. Right. But actually, for us, the combat was just, like, kind of a failure state, right? Yeah. I mean, we obviously didn't want it to be, oh, if you get spotted, you shot, your dead, start over. Because right. that sucks. Like, this is like, okay, like, well, there needs to be... Ninja, like... <laughs> yeah, there needs to be, like, some way to recover. Like, I mean, that's, again, part of the reason why stealth games are interesting, because they, like, they have a relatively wide band of failure, right? right? The ones that are good, it's like, oh, you can be kind of spotted, but then return to the shadows, or the guys can see, but then you can lose them, or whatever. So we didn't want it just to be like, oh, if you get spotted, you're dead. It's like, okay, well, you need some way to, like, recover from being spotted that isn't just running away all the time, so players can kind of be like, okay, well, I'm gonna do a little bit of a risk-reward. Maybe I can take this guy out really quickly before the other dudes show up, or whatever. Um, but initially, like, the combat system was just, it was just way bigger, way more complicated, and it was just, yeah, it was basically saying to the players, the combat in this is, is, is really important. So people would try to sneak, they would fail, yeah. and then they just, like, you know, Rambo through the rest of the level. It's like, okay, well, we just need to just pare this down, get, get rid of as much of it as possible, make it really simple, and then it, it, and once we just kept paring it down to, like, the amount of presence it had in the design was about proportional to how important we thought it should be. Right. That's when it, it sat about right and was doing now, were you, what at we the wanted. time, were you, were you aware of that at a high level? Like, like, the combat is just, there's too much stuff here. 
I mean, eventually when we when or we was made it the, was it based off of like playtesting or like, yeah, like how yeah, did yeah, this yeah. work? How did this actually happen? Yeah, it was with a dungeon playtesting. Like we were mostly at that point we were just playtesting with like other local Vancouver developers. Like we did a bunch, a bunch of like blind public playtesting later. But that early super complicated combat version of the game was basically playing with other like Vancouver right. devs, and it was kind of like, oh yeah, people are not really playing this the way we intended them to. So let's just keep pairing it back until yeah. well it's a brave choice to be pulling stuff out of the game instead of like trying to fix it or, yeah like, like, I mean, imagine being like well maybe the combat system is just not good enough or whatever yeah. um, this reminds me of a bit of did you ever play the did you play Sands of Time Warrior Within yeah Prince of Persia yeah. games did you play both of them yeah okay um, I think I played the first three actually okay I mean I love Sands of Time yeah. I thought that game was amazing yeah and I feel like they had kind of like a similar and they maybe did not make the transition correctly <laughs> um, like Sands of Time I thought was amazing and the only the only like blemish on it was basically like the combat yeah right and I think everyone knew that and so then going to Warrior Within they're like okay let's fix the combat yeah. right like we got like the problem is there's not enough stuff in the combat yeah. system right like, actually like, that's I, I the wish opposite. they had been brave and just been like no we need less combat like, yes we, like we need to take combat out entirely yeah like, if you get in one of those situations you die you need to avoid those situations yeah right? like that's not what people that's not what people love about your game exactly right and like yeah. being being brave enough to be like like we're just going to focus on the stuff that's important you know even if even if people think this game should have this element yeah like, I, I mean i think that was kind of advantageous working in like kind of a known genre like a stealth game or whatever it's like okay well you kind of know the good stealth games don't have combat as a big feature right so we're kind of like, so it was it was never that we wanted combat to be a big part of the game we we're just trying to figure out like how much of it is the right amount for the play experience we wanted and then it's just oh yeah the less there was the better it was <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. Um, but, I mean, obviously we still wanted... I mean, still there's obviously all the stealth takedown stuff. Right. And that is still there because the other thing that I, I, I like about stealth games is they kind of support that, like, how the player engages with the game at a very, like, high level of, like, violence choice, right? So it's like, oh, technically you can get through the game without killing anybody, aside from, you know, like, two important NPC assassination targets. But, like, otherwise you can just go through the entire game being a ghost, never, never attacking anybody, never being seen... But the fact that that choice is there versus the, oh, but if you also want to just, like, lay waste to this whole level silently, that's t also totally fine. And the fact that that is just, like, a high-level play decision the player makes is also really satisfying. The thing that I also super like about stealth games that most, again, like, character-based games don't really give you the option. They're like, oh, do you want the shotgun or the assault rifle? Right. You're still going to be wasting dudes. Enjoy wasting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I... Would definitely try my best not to kill guys, um, and I was always sort of curious about situations where I felt like I did have to because, uh, you know, I could see. I mean, I think you had, you had objectives of like not kill anyone, right? There was so, so there was some optional. So each level had three optional objectives, and I think some of those I don't remember if any of them were like don't waste any. Oh no! So you're probably you're probably thinking of is that at the very end of the level, and this is one of those things. It's like feels super gamey and the actual gaminess parts of it i don't really care about but what it communicates i think was actually really successful where at the end of each level you get like this scoreboard yep. tally right which yep. is kind of like arcadey and then for each for each person you stealth killed you get a certain number of points every time you were detected you lose some certain number of points but every enemy in a level who did not detect you gives the exact same amount of points 
as successfully stealth killing someone without them without being noticed. Okay. So it's kind of like the game is it's, as far as like the scoring points reinforcement feedback is totally agnostic to how you choose to perform the game, right? right? right. Like some games are like, "Oh, you don't have to kill anybody," but if you don't, it's actually just going to be really boring. Yeah, right. Like I love I love Skyrim, but playing a thief in Skyrim is actually kind of boring right you just hit control and then you creep through the dungeon and hope nobody sees you right, right, right. and then maybe you will occasionally backstab a guy and they will die right away so it's like you can kind of play the exciting way or you can play the boring way right, right. <laughs> and it, it, with, with ninja it was very much like we wanted again the game's feedback systems through like this weird kind of arcadey notion of points to be saying literally however you choose to approach the game is fine like both of these methods are totally valid there's not the good one and the other one they're both totally legit do it however you want yeah. and even though it communicates that in kind of like a gamey arcadey way i think what it communicates was actually really successful sure. like talking to people who play the game afterwards that was kind of a thing where they realized oh i can actually just ghost all these levels and the game is not going to yeah. like penalize me for it or whatever. Yeah, I mean it was communicating that um, well that plus the actual difficulty of playing the game yeah, made yeah, it clear that like trying to get through a level without killing one was a high level of, was a high challenge. Yeah. Right? And um, because it also felt like it was very in tune with what the you know the theme of the game. Yeah. You know, I felt like, well, that's that's going to be what I aspire to. Right. Right. Like, that that felt very natural, and um, I was wish I was good enough to aspire to it. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely ended up in situations where I did not. But Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. A few dead digital NPCs. And, uh, you know. <laughs> no, I don't miss them. Hidden behind some faces or whatever. <laughs> like the closets. Yes. Um, um, so what would you, um, what would you, I mean, I assume you're probably pretty happy with how Ninja turned out. Yeah. But, uh, what would you have done differently? I don't actually know. Um, it's kind of, I mean, and this, this is just totally a minor thing, but there are a few of those level like every level has three optional objectives and there are some levels where you cannot complete all three of them at once like you kind of have to run through the level multiple times to do like some of the objectives are just mutually exclusive which is kind of okay. a bummer yeah. um and then some of the objectives actually involve like you know kill three guys who are terrorized or whatever so that does conflict a little bit with the oh you can get through the game without killing anybody right. you can but you can't do all the all optional objectives that way uh, but it's just <laughs> actually the design space of coming up with how many levels are ninja actual 11 playable levels 33 optional objectives right. that can all be completed regardless of whether or not you're going to be aggressive with the guards is actually very hard yeah. um so i don't know if that's actually like solvable uh but there's just like kind of small stuff like that where it's like, oh, it supports, you know, a total ghost nonviolent playthrough like 95% of the way. Right. Um, and there'd be some way to get it all the way with all the optional objectives, that'd be cool. But again, I don't, I just don't know if that was actually possible. Right. Um, without having all the objectives just be like really high level and kind of boring. Yeah. So when you were working on the game, how, how was, I mean, were you programming? Were you a, designing? Were a you, like, bit. What was the um, role, like, how did you actually do the stuff you wanted to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the high-level systems design and talking with the programmers who are actually implementing, like, the AI system or whatever. Um, in terms of, like, the actual content that I built that was in the game was my, I built about half the levels, okay. and then uh, the other main designer, Jason Dreger, who's now one of the two 
designers on Invisible Ink. Okay. Um, he basically built the other half of the levels. Okay. So in terms of like actual content, I built what is in the game. It was about half the levels, and just a bunch of like other small like like code based implementation stuff. Like again, in kind of a similar divide, almost all the gameplay behaviors were all in like a, a like a Lua state graph type thing. Okay. And then there's obviously like the hardcore engine, which is all in C plus plus. Um, and I didn't really touch that part of it very much, but a lot of the gameplay implementation stuff i was still doing tons of that because it's just kind of like at clay all the designers are really technical right so you're just kind of always in charge of implementing your own stuff where possible and then right. if if a thing is insane you can be like oh hey help please right right, right. um so there's a lot of just like more rote implementation stuff but also building the levels was a big chunk of like actual heavy content on top right. of like the High level systems design of okay. so when you what enemies are we going to have? How are they going to behave? Right. So when you were so when you were doing Lewis stuff, like <coughs> was that you know essentially because it was possible or because you could would you could you try out stuff? Oh yeah. On your own, yeah, just yeah. To See if it works. Yeah, so you absolutely. Don't have to bother anyone else about yep. it. Yep. Yep. Totally that. Yeah. yeah. It's just it's just like I could ask one of the programmers to implement this thing. Um, sometimes it, we know we knew what it was, and someone just has to do it. It's yeah. like okay, well I can do it. I'll do it. But then it's like okay, well I want to maybe see how this is gonna work um and the fact that i don't have to bug anybody else to do that is really important yeah like one of the few actual in the engine changes i made was one weekend i was just like i just had an idea i came in like on sunday at two and then i implemented the whole pause time while aiming thing oh, okay and i just kind of just sort of mucked around in like the engine code enough to put that in and was like hey folks check this out does it seem okay good um someone help me implement this yeah, for real yeah, in the yeah. engine now but so being able to do that often in like scripting land was obviously super valuable yeah right yeah yeah i mean i it's one of the biggest reasons why i, I want to keep programming yeah as opposed to you know just just designing is that there are tons of terrible ideas that no one in my company sees correct I yep don't, i don't have to waste <laughs> their time with it i don't have to yeah. it on it you know like you know you need you don't really understand your your design until other people play it but there are plenty of times when you, even you can tell immediately yep. what's not working you're so. like oh this is I, well, no one else needs to see this <laughs> yeah. goodbye yeah. yeah excellent so they don't have you guys so clay did not have pure designers no all the design i mean like then the words on my business card right, right, were right, design right. but everyone all the designers at clay are all super technical like everyone all the design folks there are like can do and do a lot of implementation for sure. Yeah, which I think is actually really valuable. Yeah, yeah. We've we've tried to extend like pretty much all of our artists can also write code as well. Wow, which means nice. Basically, everyone on our staff wow code into different levels. Not yeah, like, for sure. Not not all of them are going to be checking in, you know, C sharp files. Right. Um, but you know, we kind of like I'm sure at some point we might hire someone who's just you know sort of a classic pure great yeah. amazing concept artist and like that's their super, right. super right, right, power right. but like um it seems it has really paid off dividends huh. right you know because yeah like everyone can experiment with stuff <laughs> and we have a bunch of these kind of really weird hybrid artist programmers man or like that a, is a rare breed yeah uh, well the guy we have who makes our co our train system is amazing like i've just given him some high level stuff and then he's just kind of gone off and like huh he's generating you know generating how the plateaus are made and yeah. he's also creating the art that fits, fits the slopes together oh my god it's just like, <laughs> wow. wow that just kind of happened like that's great that's a, that's, a, that's a good that's a good find yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it's uh so yeah i mean i really i know like programming is hard 
but like as much as possible well, you're working games like you get you gotta get that basic it's not that hard to get that first step yeah exactly like, like I don't think I think oh for loops and if statements and yeah. like you know booleans and alright great you no know. I think a lot of people are way more intimidated by actually implementing technical stuff than they should be because it's, it's actually really not that bad yeah. like if I'm ever talking to some student or someone who says I want to move, do more design stuff I'm like cool how much programming have you done right if the amount is zero do that now yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, there's so many languages now that, like, you know, can prevent, prevent people from shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah, right? totally. You know? Like, you're not having enough to worry about memory or pointers or yeah. whatever. And, you know, just do something. Just do something simple. It's fine. Yeah, you know? it is it is not bad at all. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Well, so Ninja came out. Ninja came out. And um, and then you joined the Campo Santo team. Right? Uh, or is there something almost. between there? There was. I was still at Clay for almost, like, another... 10 months okay. I think um, where we did uh, a, a big chunk of DLC for Ninja like basically at that like the way Clay was structured and again maybe Jamie talked about this but like when it went from having one team to two teams it was basically two teams in parallel but staggered so like right as Ninja was finishing yep. Don't Starve was like coming into the meat of it so yep. a whole bunch of Ninja people poured over onto Don't Starve yeah. and then a few other Ninja people stayed to like work on potential future projects and then myself and a few other folks did like this big chunk of DLC for Ninja like a whole new level, a new character, um, and added in, and this is actually really cool, and I wish more people would do this just because I like it, and so I did it to hopefully also make other people want to do it. We went back and we added like little commentary nodes throughout all the levels, so you can kind of play the game with like this commentary mode on, and it's just got like everybody on the team just be like, just barf a bunch of thoughts about like what talk about the way the environment art in this level works or you know how he implemented the audio for the guards here or whatever and just like kind of potpourri that throughout all the levels in the game which is a thing like a few games have done you know there's some valve games that do it and stuff like that but still not nearly it's stuff that i find super fascinating um and you can do way more interesting stuff with it in like if you're i mean if you're gonna go crazy with it inside of an engine than you can like mm -hmm. on the commentary like, track for dvd a, or whatever an example of well, for us, it was super lo-fi. Like, ours were literally just, like, text bubbles. Okay. And then you hit them, and they say some stuff about what, what's going on. So yeah. we, we, we did not have the, the bandwidth or time to do anything super fancy. But obviously, you could, right? right. You'd be like, oh, we're going to pause the game, you know, kind of, like, put, a, a, a like, a weird wireframe texture on top of this thing to show you, oh, how this actually works in the engine or whatever. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, so we did, like, that chunk of kind of, uh, what do we call it, like, uh, director's cut DLC, sure. basically. Yeah. Um, and that was cool. And then right when that, and then right about when that finished up is when I left to help start Campo Santo. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I, just so you know, this probably is not going to come out for another six, seven, eight months. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> like, I don't know, like if you what you want to talk about with Firewatch, but it's not like it's not coming up next week. Okay, right? cool. Something like that, just so you have the reference. Sweet. Point. And I got to bail in about fifteen minutes. Okay, that's fine. All right. Well, do you want to talk about Firewatch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So what? Uh, like, first of all, what's your role on the project? Design and implementation stuff. Not dissimilar from what I did on Ninja, kind of. Right. right. Um, obviously, except there's a lot of other folks who are also, like, guiding the high-level idea for the project is going to be. Um, but in terms of, like, day-to-day -day stuff, it's relatively similar. Like, a lot of design stuff, level building, and then just a lot of implementation. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I remember last time I talked to Sean and Jake about this, you know, it was like... What was making Firewatch distinct was, I mean, first of all, kind of the environment was kind of interesting, mm -hmm. um, and then um, uh, this concept of this 
other there was one other character right. that you're constantly you know in contact with yeah um, and that you know this you know the, the uh, presumably the relationship takes some interesting turns at some point yes. I don't know if I can only imagine um, <laughs> so what is that was that kind of what you guys saw was like the the big challenge for this project I mean. It was it was definitely the big idea. Um, the challenge, like doing that, is actually like not challenging. Like that sure. part is really easy. <laughs> like technology wise, implementation wise, yeah, implementation wise, yeah. dead simple. Sean's a great writer, so he just writes good things, and then the actors say them, and they are very good. Um, but it was a lot more like how how the actual specific details of that mechanic going to work, and then it's like, okay, well, what is the rest of it, right? It's like. If you just kind of hold W and occasionally click on a thing to say radio words about it, this is, that's not everything the game could be. Right. Right? Well, how did, maybe I should back up me further. How did they pitch the project to you originally? Or maybe you were involved in the conception. I don't uh, know. It, was, it was a rough idea that I think Sean and Jake had had first. Um, basically, the first four people who were, who were Campos were me, Sean, Jake, and Ollie Moss. Right. Um, and so, and obviously we were accreting other people shortly thereafter. Uh, but then they had done a little bit of pitching to the the, the, the big places you'd expect. Um, primarily talking about Firewatch, but as a as like a bigger game, probably like a five to ten million dollar game. Right. Um, you know, with like a whole bunch of fully animated three D characters and all that stuff. Stuff we can't afford actually. Yeah. Um, and so. Then, but obviously, like big publisher deals are the way they are, and a lot of those are like. By the way, this is just kind of a side thing, but I think it's very interesting to think about how a lot of people care passionately about making games about people. Yeah. Which you know, thinking about you guys or thinking about um, you know Steve's team. Right. Um, at the same time, they're all they're. They care about doing stuff that they can't do elsewhere, but what that means is they can't actually put real people in their games. <laughs> Correct. It's like the, the great irony of like, of like the, these endeavors, um, and that's that's totally fine. Yeah, you know, it's just it is what it is. It is it is kind of funny, but also I mean there, I think there's that's that's not this might just be spinning lead into gold, but <laughs> also like there's actually some kind of value right in just kind of the you fill that in a lot yourself. Like you don't have to worry about like oh yeah, here's, sure. here's this robot face man. Yeah, yeah. it's more yeah. like. You, you you end up kind of imagining and seeing what you want to see, which is almost always more compelling than anything even the most talented people could slap on a screen. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's not necessarily a downside, but I also find that irony kind of delicious. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of um, Yeah, so that initial big game idea was was Firewatch, basically. But then it was like, oh, God, these publisher terms are all insane. Uh, this is going to involve a whole lot of people. Uh, whoa, maybe we'll try to do a smaller thing. Burp. Um, and so I think I think Sean and Jake talked about this, maybe. Um, but uh, Jake had known the two founders of Panic, this com- right. the software company in Portland. He'd known those guys for, like, years and years and years. And they're they're just a Mac software company. But they'd done, like, a little bit of game stuff, and they kind of wanted to do some more. Um, so Jake just, like, having to tell us, talk to the guys, like, oh, I'm thinking about leaving Telltale. And then, then Cable and Steve are like, really? We should talk. <laughs> and so they ended what up... Was, what was the, like, what was the short pitch for Firewatch? Well, we basically had, like, three ideas um, of, like, ever-increasing scope. And it was okay. just, like, 
they the Sean Jake went up to Portland to talk to Panic and they're like we're thinking about like maybe this one this one or Firewatch and as soon as they talked about Firewatch so they're like oh <laughs> Firewatch uh, you guys should do that one right. it's like okay well if that's the one you're excited about that's the one we're probably most excited about so cool let's do it and then from the outside it was I mean it was basically just the game it is now it's like you're a fire lookout out in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming the only person you're talking to is on a radio yep. several towers away so you can't you can't actually see them and then it's about like you know, the relationship that builds between those characters and then all the other stuff that happens that kind of forces that relationship to go certain way, for, for, forces the player to make certain decisions about how those things are going to happen, basically. Um, and so once that... It's, it, yeah, it hasn't, like, the high-level idea of what the game is really has never changed. Um, obviously, a lot of the details have, but the high-level concept is just kind of what it always was. Mm-hmm. Um which is cool. It's kind of weird. It's sort of like the Venn diagram of all the things that all of us like. Right. <laughs> like, I really like, you know, despite I also love 2D games for sure, um, but like really embodied first person games, I also really like a lot. Like, Mirror's Edge is still one of my favorite okay. games yeah, sure. ever, right? Um, and so, really embodied first person things that have like a lot of player agency. Like, even though Firewatch tells like a very specific story, it's not like. A branching Bioware crazy game where like things can go in a million different directions. Or it's like the story that gets told is the story that gets told, but the details that happen inside of that are very much directed by the player in a way that a lot of like you know narrative story based games usually aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's either like it's either everything is totally canned and you're just going to go from the beginning to the end, or it's like okay you're going to go from scene to scene to scene and you may make decisions inside of those scenes, but it's like you're going here to here to here to here, and so. Having kind of Firewatch has more of like so a Metroidvania type structure, right? Where it's right. like initially you have access to a very small amount of the world, mm-hmm. but then you acquire some new abilities, which let you access like slightly more of the world, and then more and then more, and so then that that provides like way more direction for the player to kind of like engage with both the space and all the all the narrative stuff in a way that's more directed by them than is usually the case in games like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is that's some of the stuff that's like super exciting for me because like. I really like systems. Like I've, I've kind of made my peace with. I will always be a systems, a, a systems so what are, I mean, focused what are the designer. Systems in Firewatch. So that's why this game is weird to make because obviously it's like very much a content yeah. first game for sure, right? right? Like it's, it's about it's narrative. Easy to imagine it like okay, this is a walking simulator with a great narrative, right? right. Like that's like the assumption a lot of people are going to make. So. Yeah, so it's like okay, well that's definitely not what it could be that, but we want it to be more. I, yeah. I like to imagine that my involvement has kind of helped broaden that more than it would have if it was just a collection of other people or whatever. Um in that like there is there's the there's the high level like structure of the whole game, like kind of that metroidvania structure, right. right? Where it's like okay, well, you know, you initially have access to a small amount of space, but then when you get more space, you can so you now have the ability to like revisit places you've been before, and maybe yep. they have different meanings. Yep. Um, and just like having trying to make sure that even though there aren't a ton of player verbs, the one that are, the ones that are there are as consistent as possible. It's not like oh, would you like to do A or B, but it's rather it's like you can pick up stuff in the game and throw it around. Right. And so if you happen to throw this thing over here, well, that will behave in a reasonable way because that's. How right. it will. You've got consistent rules. 
throughout the world. Exactly. Basically. And then have and like just finding ways to support like either interesting narrative moments or other like interesting interactions in a way that's about like having that consistent verb set and then just exploiting that wherever possible. Versus like most because most story based games are very much like here is the specific content. Would you like content slice A or content slice right. B? Um, have it more just be like really just approach this however you see fit. And then we hopefully have built an interesting interaction for you, regardless of how you choose to engage with it. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, that's potentially one of the things interesting about Firewalks is is, is mixing, you know, some narrative design people with some system design people. Yeah. And, like seeing seeing how it could fit. Yeah, it's a, and and even just like you know the way that. Because it seems simple. It's like oh, you can talk to someone about other stuff on the radio, but the actual details of that are way more complicated than you might think. Mm -hmm. um, so figuring out all that stuff has been interesting and hopefully will we'll feel less like mechanical, not mechanical, not mechanical, like mechanics, but like robotic or yeah. stru overly structured or whatever than game, than the kind of like narrative ba games based like that usually are. Right. Cool. Um, all right, well, we're kind of getting to the end here now. So <laughs> what I often like to ask is like, you know, so looking back at the work you've done, like why, why do you think you, why did you make video games? Like, why is that something that you basically owed your life to? Oh, sorry. And you're, you're asking the hard questions now. <laughs> I gotta be all introspective. Um, I mean, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I just like solving hard problems. Right. Um, and that like, that's at least what interesting design is all about. Right. Like it's about Figuring out, like, it's about having problems that will often, more often than not, you've just you've just created for yourself, right? <laughs> and then having to find unique solutions to those problems, and that's the thing that I just find tremendously satisfying. And that, like, often any kind of you know any kind of other like interesting problem solving like that is often it's gonna be directed by its outside aims at some level, right? Um, but with like game design stuff, it often you can just kind of, yeah, it, like just create a problem and then find interesting ways to solve it and let people engage with it um, in a way that often you can't if you're solving problems that exist in the real world. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and I, and just in general, like I'm, I am very much interested in systems. Like I find systems just as like a general concept conceit or whatever for how things operate to be super interesting and games are kind of like systems are actually the fundamental form of games right, right? like you know lots of games have plenty of emotional affect or whatever but ultimately the things that make them games are their systems and that is kind of like someone may be really passionate about I don't know, performance, so that's why they want to make movies or whatever. They may be really passionate about motion, so that's why they become a dancer or something like that. But with right. me, I'm like, I love systems, and games are the the, the most fundamentally systemic like, yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, well, there's, there's fascinating stuff to explore here, and then it kind of maybe lets other people also think more about systems than they might normally in their life. Right. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's tremendous value there, even if you know, people don't explicitly take the leap from that to thinking about the systemic problems that are involved in how the hell we solve climate change or whatever else. But understanding, like, right. oh, rules are complicated. Like, yeah. there are inputs and there are outputs, and yeah. that's what transforms. Or, you know, if you change a law, 
in your government, like it might have effects that you anticipate because yes. people learn to game that, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, that that inputs and outputs are that direct lines of causality actually almost never exist. Mm -hmm. That there are usually three or four different things all pushing on a thing at once, and that's why it ends up where it does. And the fact that games are just able to manifest that so often is is just it's just fascinating. Yeah. Like I love it. Yeah, I mean there's I mean, you know, you could do that somewhat with board games before. Um but you know the the it's just this thing that was not possible three years ago, right? Yeah, you know? for sure. And uh, that's that's what's so exciting about video games now. It's yeah, like your humanities is able to explore this this they have this experience that you know did not exist before because the, the you know there was just not a machine that could let them experiment with systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, of course, like not not the malign. I love board games as well, and I think yeah. there's actually. There's this weird, <clears throat> even though the actual mechanics don't bleed into each other that much, like I think the increasing complexity of digital games has absolutely led to the rise of like more interesting experimentation in analog games mm -hmm. and those things like bleed yeah. back and short. I think like, their support, like I think the, the board game renaissance has, you know, encouraged game designers to appreciate like being transparent, you know, yeah. like, you know, that, that it's, you know, it's great for you. The players want to engage directly with the rules. So yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we didn't run out of time to talk about Netrunner. So. <laughs> Good thing you have your own podcast to do that. So. That's right. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. much.